Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join. Three people have decided to sue the Detroit Police Department because they were falsely identified and then arrested, partially because of facial recognition technology. Today, we have a conversation about this technology, how it's used, why it's used, and the downside of it here in the city of Detroit. is that it can enhance the way we understand the world and the way we relate to one another. But there's also an almost inherent downside of technology, and that's the danger that it can solidify and even exaggerate the ways that we misunderstand the world and lead us to victimize each other. I think that's kind of an interesting framing for a discussion about things like facial recognition software. In theory, the ability to more easily and more accurately identify people should make it possible to avoid or clear up more errors, more mistakes. But the problem with the current facial recognition technology is that when it's wrong, it's disproportionately wrong about people of color about African-Americans in particular, and about younger black women specifically. So in that way, this is an example of technology compounding a lot of harm that African-Americans already experience. We live in a nation whose institutions and practices are imbued with both overt and tacit discrimination. And facial recognition, when it's at its worst, makes that discrimination more manifest. Here in Detroit, we are living that reality right now. As of this week, a third person has decided to sue the Detroit Police Department after being falsely arrested because facial recognition software Midless misled police officers. On February 16th, 32-year-old Portia Woodruff was arrested in her Detroit home at 7.50 a.m. while getting her kids ready for school. She was accused of robbery and carjacking based on, in part, a facial recognition hit from surveillance footage. The lawsuit says that Woodruff suffered pain, humiliation, emotional distress, and economic damages, among other things, from this arrest. And this case, again, only brings facial recognition software back into the spotlight. We have already seen since 2019 when Detroit police adopted that policy and started using facial recognition. We've had an incredible debate about it. To put constraints on the system, the police say they require evidence outside of facial recognition hits alone and that each hit is reviewed by two officers and a supervisor before they move forward with an investigation. Now, we reached out to DPD to get them to join us on the show and talk about how they're using this and explain a little more about why they think these mistakes are happening. But they didn't agree to come on air. They did, however, give us a statement. 
And Detroit Police Chief James White says in that statement that he found this lawsuit from Portia Wood- Woodruff uh, very concerning and that the department is taking this matter, quote, very seriously. But that does still leave us with big questions about facial recognition technology. Should we be comfortable with police who have an incredible amount of power to disrupt our lives using technology that's prone to these kinds of mistakes, that leans into the systems of inequality that govern everything in this country? Later in the hour, we're going to talk with a facial recognition software expert and a congressional lawmaker from Detroit. Both uh, are going to help us understand a little more about what this is, how it should be used. And, of course, the lawmaker, who is Rashida Tlaib, is someone who really wants to pull back on the usage of this technology by police departments. But before we get to those folks... We want to talk with two people who are advocating against the use of this uh, technology in Detroit. Phil Mayer is a senior staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan. He was the lead litigator in the Robert Williams case, and that was a man who sued the Detroit Police Department when he was wrongfully arrested and jailed based on faulty facial recognition technology. Phil, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you. Good to be here. Also with us is Tawana Petty. She leads the Detroit Digital Justice Coalition. She is a data rights organizer on the impact that surveillance has on Detroiters and a really strong voice for social justice here in the city of Detroit. Tawana, it's great to have you in studio. Welcome back to Detroit today as well. All right. So, Phil, I'm going to start with you. Uh, As I said, You represented uh, Robert Williams, who was misidentified by facial recognition technology and then was arrested because of it. Uh, Talk to us a little about that case and what ultimately came of it. Yeah, well, um, first, let me say, Stephen, uh, that uh, I actually still do represent Robert Williams. Yes. Because although we filed the lawsuit two years ago, uh, rather than reforming its policies or abandoning the use of this dangerous, faulty and racist technology, uh, the city has continued to use it. <clears throat> it's continued to use it in the exact same ways that it used it, resulting in Mr. Williams's false arrest, while fighting this lawsuit tooth and nail. Um, so instead of t- t- using this, uh, what happened to Mr. Williams as a as a chance to reform, uh, to to move past its misuse of this technology, uh, the department has persisted in using it. Uh, Mr. Williams was arrested uh, as the result of a faulty facial recognition. Uh, check. He is, uh, there was a shoplifting incident at a Shinola store, and the police pulled, uh, pulled surveillance footage and ran it through the facial recognition system. They got uh, an investigative lead that says you're supposed to only treat it as a lead and actually go out and conduct a real investigation. That real investigation, so-called, consisted of nothing more than putting that same photo or another photo of Mr. Williams into a, uh, a six-pack photo lineup where they put six photos on a page of paper. They showed it to a security guard who was not even present at the, in- at the time of the shoplifting incident. That security guard picked out Mr. Williams, which is not surprising because they'd picked a photo that looked kind of like the perpetrator mm-hmm. from a computer and put it with five other photos. And based on nothing more than that, they arrested Mr. Williams on his front lawn, refusing to tell him why he was arrested in front of his two young daughters and his wife, hauled him off to the Detroit Detention Center where he spent 30 hours in jail. 
again, still not understanding why he was there until he was finally interviewed by detectives who accused him of the theft and, uh, and, um, and, and eventually figured out that the computer had gotten it wrong, uh, but not before Mr. Williams uh, missed his daughter losing her first tooth while he was in jail. Uh, while he was gone, he told his daughters, because he actually trusted the police when he was arrested, don't worry, Daddy will be right home, this is a mistake. While he was gone for 30 hours, his daughters turned around photos of him because they couldn't bear to see Daddy after he'd failed to come mm. back home. Mm. Uh, and and when we we didn't start by suing, we started by asking the DPD to fix this and filing a complaint with the DPD, and instead they've resisted. So we ultimately had to sue. They've continued to resist, and now they're doing it again. Yeah. So I, I want to play a quick clip. Uh, Robert Williams was a guest on the show here a few years ago, and we asked him about this experience of being arrested and why he thinks facial recognition should be uh, faced out. Let's listen to what he said. When you just run a face match and uh, show up to somebody's door and say you're arrested, because uh, literally that's exactly what happened to me. They showed up to my house and and when he when he pulled in my driveway and he got off the car, he said, "Are you Robert Williams?" I said, "Yes." He said, "You're under arrest." So I think it, I think it should be banned personally for uh, multiple reasons, like we, like we were just talking about that the technology is flawed. And the, and the policing is flawed, and the whole thing is flawed. So, uh, Tawana Petty, I want to bring you into the conversation here, listening to Robert Williams again, uh, that that conversation that we had a few years ago, uh, really brings up some pretty strong emotions for me. I mean, it's a very difficult story to listen to, and I think anybody could easily get to the point of anger over what happened to him. You think though, that this fits into a larger context of surveillance here in Detroit and the way we live under surveillance in Detroit. Uh, talk about your feelings about facial recognition and, again, that environment of, of surveillance. Yeah. Thank you again, Stephen. Um, that, that story also brings up a lot of emotions for me. I, I've been struggling against this conflation between surveillance and safety for many years now. Uh, Detroit is really uh, leading the charge to massively surveil predominantly black communities. Our law enforcement travels all across the globe, marketing Project Greenlight's uh, pervasive surveillance program and facial recognition technology as a way to keep community members safe. And that's a dangerous trajectory. Um, we warned many years ago that these uh, facial recognition misidentification cases were going to happen. And so, you know, we have now uh, Robert Williams, Michael Oliver, and Portia Woodroff, but we don't know how many other cases exist out there. We don't know how many uh, folks who don't have more of a, like, wholesome uh, family life that can, you know, like Robert Williams is easy to determine. He's not the person who, who did this crime, right? Portia Woodroff is easy to determine. She's not the person who committed this crime. But how many people... Uh, are incarcerated or had to plead guilty to a crime because maybe they have a previous record. Uh, I think about Michael Oliver's case and how much more difficult that was because he had had interaction with law enforcement previously. And so um, the, the pervasiveness of not having anywhere to visit around the city without being surveilled by these technologies uh, has created a situation where the walls are closing in on us. We're all subjected to this perpetual lineup of our images 
being run through a database every time a crime is committed. And so it could have it could have easily been you. It could have been me. It could have been Phil. It could have been any number of us, because when you have a database of tens of thousands and sometimes millions, depending on which database is leveraged, um, there is no limit to who can become uh, incarcerated or investigated uh, leveraging surveillance technology. Yeah. yeah. So so. I do wish that uh, the Detroit Police Department had provided us with somebody to talk about this, but but because they're not here, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to step a little into their shoes to mm-hmm. to to ask some questions about this. I mean, first of all, these are very popular programs. Blue uh, green light, for instance, mm-hmm. is I mean it's it's everywhere in the city, and people volunteer, right? Businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, all kinds of institutions volunteer to put that little green light out in front of uh, their 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 place of business and and uh, participate in that in that program. And I think you also uh, can just talk with Detroiters uh, about their concerns about crime and hear people. I hear people all the time talk about, well, at least uh, you have some of this now on camera now, and it makes it makes it easier to solve these crimes. What What's your answer to, to that position? Yeah, I've been in Detroit my entire life. I am a black woman who lives alone in Detroit, um, and I want to be safe just as well as anyone else who lives in the city. But I am not persuaded that massively surveilling Detroit's population is going to create safety, and I think it's dangerous when we are sold this narrative that relying on this technology um, is going to create that type of environment. We know what creates crime. Quality of life issues create most of the crime that we're experiencing in Detroit. And so millions, tens of millions of dollars have been spent on these surveillance programs and tens of millions of dollars have been extracted from these resource programs that could create situations where there aren't quality of life crimes. And so I don't want to be sold a dream of safety. I actually want to be safe. Mm. And so Mm. that's my response to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Phil, DPD says it uses this technology as a secondary way to ensure that they have the right person. Uh, They would also say, I think, that, that when you're talking about mistakes, errors, they are a distinct minority among the, 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 the many uses for something like this. What's the answer to those positions that, that anything you use is going to have uh, some rate of error and that the rate of error here is, is not substantially different from, from other things, other kinds of investigative tools? Well, what's clear is this is actually a, a technology that is sort of rigged to create error. Um, it's a shoddy technology and it creates shoddy investigations because detectives do what what we all in some ways do when a computer tells us something, which is that they they learn to trust it and they learn to lean on it. And that's what we've seen time and time again. And, you know, it's, this is a this is a pattern. This is not an isolated incident. This is multiple incidents, uh, despite DPD being on notice of how it's misusing this technology and in per- particularly pernicious is when they use uh, facial recognition uh, and then move to a lineup based on that because you've uh, you've leveraged uh, the technology to sort of put an image that looks something like the perpetrator into into a lineup um, and DPD says that they that they train their detectives uh, not to do that but uh, we have been litigating in the Robert Williams case for over two years and, and in fact there is no training 
on that. In fact, what we learned during the Robert Williams case is for many years, uh, the Detroit police was not even providing any introductory training program when it promotes a beat cop to an investigator. You're talking about a complete change in position from you know patrolling the streets to investigating crime, holding this position of public trust of deciding who to seek warrants against. And, and we have seen uh, it, it is not just one detective, it's a complete failure to train and it's not just on facial recognition, it's on uh, how to conduct lineups, it's on the legal duty that a police officer has to disclose when they seek a warrant any exculpatory information, any information that might suggest that the person they're investigating is innocent. And because they don't train the officers on how this technology works and how it doesn't work, those officers aren't in a position to tell uh, the people they're asking for warrants all the ways in which the technology is unreliable. For example, if you look at Mr. Williams' case, the, uh, the match that was given as an investigative lead in his case was to his previous expired driver's license. Meanwhile, his then current driver's license was in the same database. Mm. It was searched, and the technology spit out 486 possible people who it might be. It didn't pick his current driver's license as a single one of those. So when you say, don't worry, people are involved in the process, I say, look at how the process works. Look at the questions that people are not asking, that they're not trained to ask, that they don't even try to ask. Very similar with Portia Woodruff. The photo that uh, supposedly matched to the, the perpetrator here was, I believe, an eight-year-old photo of Miss Woodruff, who mm. I believe is now 32 or 33. Most of us have quite significant changes right? to look a little Eight bit years. different from when we're 24. <laughs> right. um, I wish I looked like I did when I was 24. Uh, but, um, and, and you know, th those questions, it, they're not asked. And that means that the uh, and, and officers aren't trained in them. And that means an officer who tries to depend on this technology doesn't even know what to ask the person who's handing them this lead. Yeah. And they definitely don't know the information that they are under a legal duty to provide to someone they're asking for a warrant to arrest this person, to seize them on their front lawn or while they're cooking breakfast like Ms. Woodruff was and, and take them from their family. Yeah. In fact, uh, at a press conference yesterday, the police chief, James White, updated uh, his statement, and he now insists that this wasn't a case of botched facial recognition. He's talking about uh, uh, the, the current case of Portia Woodruff. He says instead he's blaming investigators for using improper procedures and failing to do any follow-up investigation. It's exactly what you're talking about, Phil, that, that this fits in the context of, of other kinds of investigative technique. Yeah, I mean, that's true, but uh, Chief White tries to pretend that facial recognition isn't part of the puzzle right. when, in fact, it is the instigating factor. Uh, I saw that press conference, and, and I believe the chief opened by saying something like, this wasn't a failure of facial recognition. Yes, he did. Well, I I'm sorry, but if a investigation that begins with facial recognition, as multiple investigations have and follows the exact same course that those investigations follow when you use that technology, keeps resulting in false arrests, yes, facial recognition is absolutely uh, to blame here. So is human error. So is supervisorial top-level policy error at the DPD that is not that is refusing, despite us litigating this issue for multiple years, to provide training to its officers to inform them how this technology works and how it doesn't. They aren't training their officers, for example, that the technology misidentifies black people at disproportionate mm -hmm. rates, as you noted earlier. Mm -hmm. That's something that it seems really important that a detective relying on using this technology in one of the blackest cities in America should know and should be telling any judge or magistrate who they want to rely on a facial recognition scan as part of a reason to issue a warrant to arrest a person. Yeah.
Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue talking about facial recognition technology and whether this is a step forward or a step back in the realm of criminal justice and, of course, social justice. We're going to add another voice to the conversation, Derek Riley, who is a professor and program director in electrical engineering and computer science at the Milwaukee School of Engineering. He's an expert in machine learning deep learning, artificial intelligence, lots of things that relate to things like facial recognition. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Is technology moving criminal justice forward or is it helping criminal justice lean into the systems of inequality that have governed our lives in this nation since the beginning? We've got two great guests already in the conversation here. Tawana Petty leads the Detroit Digital Justice Coalition. She is a data rights organizer who studies the impact of surveillance on us here in Detroit. She's also a real crusader for uh, social justice here in our city. Phil Mayer is a senior staff attorney with the ACLU of Michigan, and he was the lead litigator uh, in the Robert Williams case, a man who uh, is still trying to figure out uh, how to get some justice from the Detroit Police Department after he was wrongfully arrested and jailed based on faulty facial recognition technology. I want to add another voice to the conversation as well. Uh, Derek Riley is professor and program director in electrical engineering and computer science at Milwaukee School of Engineering. He is an expert in machine learning and deep learning and artificial intelligence, all things that have to do with uh, facial recognition and the advance of uh, technology in criminal justice. Uh, Derek Riley, welcome to Detroit Today. Excellent. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I, I really wonder if you can talk to us a little about uh, something I was talking about at the beginning of the show, that the promise of technology is that it will help us understand the world around us better and clear up errors. But in the first part of the show, we heard a lot about the ways in which this technology in particular uh, is doing the opposite. It is uh, creating errors uh, and leaning into uh, misunderstandings that we already have about the world uh, and each other. How do we how do we balance that kind of uh, dynamic and and how do we make sense of it in a in a technical in a technical context? Yeah, I mean that's a great question. I think that you know one of the big challenges here is anytime a new technology hits the scene a lot of folks really see opportunities with how to apply that technology. And, you know, initially the innovation tends to be, you know, formed around relatively straightforward, simplistic problems. And we all know that we live in a world where that's not reality. And so we see a lot of promise with a technology like deep learning and AI, where we see these really, um, these neat, uh, these really impressive solutions to really constrained problems. And that's enough to inspire people to say, hey, I see that solution over here where this thing can tell the difference between a dog and a cat and go, hey, you know, I could start using this for other means. Um, they start applying it in other areas, see some results, but then, you know, that, that sort of um, gets adopted broadly. And uh, we don't always take a step back and say, 
this the right way to use it or how effective is it? Um, it gets commercialized, accelerated, and then, um, yeah, we end up in a place like we are today. Yeah. So, so I want to talk about the problem of racial bias in this technology and whether from your perspective that is a technical challenge, in other words, that the technology itself is limited in the way that it can distinguish uh, people of color versus uh, versus other people, or whether that is a cultural bias that's just uh, uh, reflected in the technology. Uh, is this a limitation uh, that we can't get around, or is this something that if you had a different set of people really in charge of it uh, and programming it, that it would that it would lean away? from that kind of discrimination? Yeah, I mean, that's a, another great question. And uh, the short answer is it is really both. Um, I think the, the social challenge is um, better documented in some ways because it's a little bit more understandable. You know, a lot of the ways these AI technologies have been built is by scraping the publicly available information. Mm-hmm. And if you go out to the web and do an image search um, on, on your favorite search engine, you know, the, you're going to find a, an, an unbalanced representation of the world, right? Um, folks who have access to the Internet um, tend to have more affluence. Um, you know, people who tend to post images are, are you know, maybe of different demographics. Um, and, and so all of, all of these sort of social factors that, that feed the data that feeds these, um, these large systems uh, certainly creates a bias. Um, we are, you know, in, in a better place today than we were about understanding the impacts of that bias, mm. but it does still exist. There are technology solutions to addressing the fact that there are imbalances between data sets. And the first step is understanding and recognizing that there is an imbalance in the data sets that are going in and feeding these systems, recognizing that and, and training with that. The, the other sort of technology challenge with this is um, everything in these AI systems has to take real-world information and convert it into digital information, which basically means it has to turn it into numbers. And uh, the way that pictures are turned into numbers is with color saturation values. Mm -hmm. So the brighter a color is, the higher that number is. Well, you know, if, if uh, folks who have darker complexions are fed into that, inherently the, the, the light representations in those images are different. And so we can have two challenges. We have a numerical challenge where we can use algorithms to overcome the numerical differences between images. But we also have the representation challenge when we're training these models. And, and you have to be cognizant of both when you're doing this. And so I think you know, um, if your goal is to create a toy project to show you can show the difference between a cat and a dog, and that's kind of fun, um, that's one thing. But if you're trying to build a production system that's going to be used, mm-hmm. you know, in the criminal justice system, you know, you, you have to approach the problem more comprehensively. Yeah, yeah. Tawana, I'm sitting here watching your face as <laughs> we're listening uh, to Derek Riley uh, talk, and, and you don't seem... You don't seem optimistic or or convinced that that uh, that these are pro- that these are solvable problems. Yeah, um, I, I appreciate uh, the way that Derek broke things down. I'll say that um, I'm not as optimistic that local governments will have any systemic policy changes that will prevent this type of harm from happening. Mm-hmm. But I will say there is some positive movement on a federal level. And I think that now we're leaning into a situation 
that can be addressed. You know, some examples are uh, the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, which came out of the White House, that some local governments are trying to uh, systematize on local levels, which will put in those racial um, uh, pursuits of pursuing racial equity within algorithmic systems. And so um, it's interesting to hear uh, Derek talk about that. And, you know, I had a bit of a chuckle because, right, if you're comparing a cat and a dog or you're doing something like that, then, yes, you might get a little offended if your dog is not represented correctly. Hmm. But when you're leveraging those very same biases with human beings, with human beings yeah. um, and facial recognition introduces that bias uh, when law enforcement is using that. And so now you have tens of thousands, sometimes millions of people uh, who are being experimented on in real time uh, for investigative leads. I'll just finally say they throw around investigative lead as mm -hmm. if it's not having law enforcement mm -hmm. upend your life while they pursue someone for a crime. <clears throat> you know, so to say it's simply used as an investigative lead um, is gaslighting because I don't know if you've ever been investigated by the police, but it's not a walk in the park. No, so, um, so I, you know, I just want to say that, but I appreciate uh, Derek's comments yeah. and I'm looking forward to more action on federal level and I hope it has a local impact. Yeah. yeah Phil, go ahead. Yeah. I, you know, I, th I think the other thing is, you know, the, those, those answers sort of go to the questions about whether or not we can make the technology more accurate, mm -hmm. but the the ways in which it interacts with the racism that is otherwise uh, just laced through the criminal legal system uh, can't can't be fixed with a with a technological fix, no matter what. Uh, you know, this technology is dangerous when it doesn't work, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about Robert Williams or Portia Woodruff. But it's it's arguably even more dangerous when it does work. Uh, we we know from centuries of history in this country what is going to be done with improved surveillance techniques in America. It is going to be deployed against underprivileged communities, against people of color, and it's going to be used to surveil those communities. We're using a system that works uh, partly off of mugshots. We know that uh, through the the racism that is deeply enmeshed in our policing. Uh, who is predominant or, or, or out of proportion in mugshot databases, mm -hmm. uh, and and there's and, and and we know the pressure that the criminal legal system brings. We talked about, uh, you know, Tawana talked about Michael Oliver potentially having a, a harder time with these situations because of former uh, involvement with law enforcement. Uh, if we've got false identifications happening for people who are criminally involved because of a system that criminally involves different people in our society at different rates and they're facing different pressures to plead, uh, I mean, we can see where the false convictions are going to fall, but we can also just see who's going to be watched when they go to their places of worship, when they go to their homes, when they go to the clinic I mean, down the street. this speaks to the, the systemic uh, bias, and you're saying that that if you put a tool, even if the tool were neutral, let's say, just for the sake of argument that it were, if you place it in the middle of a system that's not, what you get is the, you know, the bias that's, that's front loaded into the, into the system. Yeah, exactly right. And really, it's an accelerant for that bias, right? right. It, it, it supercharges that bias and, and allows you to do what you were already doing in terms of people you're over-policing, but do it more efficiently. Uh, and, and so, you know, to me, fixing, fixing the tech uh, to be more accurate doesn't create the problem that the technology is arguably more dangerous when it does work right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. And to start today with Kyle in Ypsilanti. Kyle, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for taking the call. Sure. Um, I'm wondering how 
an imperfect technology um, like facial recognition rises to meet all the criteria of a legal standard for a conviction. You know, like I'm thinking of the lie detector test, you know, that's now largely debunked. Mm -hmm. You know, how does this technology meet all of the legal criteria so quickly? So that you can, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, like if an investigator received a tip from somebody that someone was at a certain place where a crime occurred or something, you know, they wouldn't take that as meeting all the criteria they need to make a case. Sure. And so I'm I'm interested to as to how this technology rose so quickly. Yeah, Kyle, great uh, question. Um, uh, Phil, I think you're the right person to address that uh, from from a legal perspective, how that works. Uh, but but again. One of the things that the police department is saying is that they're not using it as a as a primary and guest investigative technique, and they are not, I, I think, using it as actual evidence in uh, in in cases. Am I right about that? Or well, I mean, the, the legal answer is is that uh, the, at least for now, although stay tuned for what they're going to say next, <laughs> law enforcement are saying you know this isn't enough on its own a facial recognition uh, investigative lead to to do an arrest. But then you have to peel peel the curtain back and say, okay, well, what do you do? What kind of investigation do you conduct? And what we have seen is that the technology makes investigators very, very lazy and that the shoddy technology makes shoddy investigations. Mm. Um, but w- w- another thing that's interesting about uh, Kyle's question is, you know, uh, this technology, when it's used, law enforcement does not take the position that they should be letting defense attorneys know and letting defendants who are identified by it know that they've used this technology. So people actually aren't even able to, in many cases, know that this has been weaponized against them and challenge the way that they were dragged into the system um, and maybe like why they were in a lineup in the first place. Uh, and, and and ironically, the reason I think a law enforcement official would tell you that they don't do that is because they would say, oh, well, the, the facial recognition uh, result isn't that reliable. So that's not evidence in the defendant's favor. We don't have to turn that over. And, and that just... I mean, the mere fact that that would have to be their defense shows precisely what's wrong with the reliance on this technology in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Derek Riley, um, talk a little about the things um, that we could be doing or the things that you see happening or maybe beginning to happen that that make this uh, at least a little more accurate from a technical side. I mean, obviously we're talking about the social context of of these things. But from a technical standpoint, does this have more promise? Uh, Does it get better from here? It absolutely can. I think the the big question is, will that investment be made uh, by the companies that are, um, you know, are commercializing it? I think that's the real big question. Um, You know, there have definitely been applications of, you know, basically – off-the-shelf systems that, that, you know, law enforcement can go out and buy um, and they can just use off-the-shelf, you know, and part of the challenge of that is it's completely like the, the inner workings of how those systems work is uh, intentionally obfuscated. So nobody really knows how, you know, what, what the metrics are for how they perform with different populations or, um, you know, any any of those sorts of things that I think ultimately what really matters is not a, you know, a top line accuracy number or, you know, recall or precision, the, the metrics that are used in academic papers. What really matters is how it works for that individual. And I think um, 
the bridge from sort of academic research um, into production is well sort of uh, worn. We understand how you know these theoretical concepts can be brought in and sold as products, but then how that impacts people is an interesting. And I think that's the harder bridge to cross here. And I think unfortunately there are a number of people caught up in. The, you know, it's guinea pigs, more or less, right? And um, I think that's the challenge. I think technically, yes, there are solutions that can be brought for this, but I actually think the legal pressure on uh, failings of these technologies is going to force them to either be moved into disuse for these applications or it will force the companies who are using these to offer solutions and evidence that they work more effectively, a lot like the lie detector test. You kind of have to put up or shut up. Yeah. Okay, uh, Tawana Petty, Derek Riley, and Phil Mayer. It was really great to have all three of you here for this conversation on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, we're going to be joined by Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who is a Democrat from Detroit. She represents Michigan's 12th congressional district. She is someone who is really pushing to have uh, it be harder for states and cities to get funding from the federal government to use this facial recognition technology. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Talking about technology, facial recognition technology in particular, and how it is influencing our lives now that law enforcement is using that technology as part of their investigative technique. I want to add another voice to the conversation here. Rashida Tlaib is a Democrat in Congress who represents Michigan's 12th congressional district, and she's someone who is trying to make it harder for states and cities to get funding to use this facial recognition technology. Uh, Rashida, welcome back to Detroit Today. No, thank you so much for having me, Stephen. So tell me why you're against the use of this facial recognition software. I mean, other than the studies and the fact that many of our prosecutors across the nation that have facial recognition technology in their communities Uh, can't even use it as evidence because it's so flawed. Uh, And it's, you know, it's racist technology. I mean, it is factual, uh, studied, you know, facts are supporting that, uh, you know, it it just does not recognize black and brown people, especially our black neighbors, misidentifies them 100 times more likely uh, than others. And so it, 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 to me, it's a flawed system. All this public funds being used for something that actually is going to make us less safe. It's not just Portia. It's so many others. I mean, this is the third one that we know of, mm-hmm. a false arrest. But the trauma of the fact that you're getting arrested, you know, I remember Robert Williams talking about how uh, he was put in an overcrowded cell for 30 hours. I mean, this is really about civil liberties and protection of folks. And if technology is showing us that, it doesn't recognize darker skin, uh, you know, black and brown community in black and brown communities. Then why is the 85 percent black city deciding this is going to be one of their priority funding uh, activities uh, in the community? And again, it targets it targets communities of color. And I just don't believe, uh, uh, you know, the federal government um, should allow uh, that to come out. I mean, I think every American deserves to live without discriminatory discriminatory surveillance by its own government and police. Yeah. So so you've co-sponsored uh, H.R. 3907, which is the Facial Recognition and Biometric Technology Moratorium Act of 2021. Tell us a little more about that and what it would take for something like this to actually pass in Congress. 
I mean, it's going to be really difficult, but we do have a lot of colleagues on the other side who do um, really push for privacy. Um, you know, this, I mean, this legislation will prevent government from using facial recognition technology, um, specifically around, um, uh, you know, one of the things I, I, I mentioned, and I think the previous administration actually um, was very concerned about privacy issues, especially around HUD, HUD uh, housing and so forth. And we, again, worked in bringing awareness when we introduced these bills. But I think there are some colleagues that do are very concerned, very concerned about privacy and civil liberties issues. I mean, these are the same people that uh, very much oppose um, the, you know, searchless warrants and, uh, you know, kind of the government overstretching. I mean, again, we may not agree on everything, but I think they know that this can go too far. Um, even though I know it is already targeting communities of color, it seems to me sometimes colleagues wait until it's their communities being targeted. But I, you know, I'm not going to wait to be able to uplift and educate folks about this. And you should know, Stephen, I mean, I went firsthand mm -hmm. into the Detroit Police Department. They ran the system. Mm -hmm. They were looking for a male black suspect and over 120 hits. So basically they had done for 120 uh, you know, all of a sudden these faces came up, right? And there's a person, um, you know, that presses the buttons and does it and then looks at the screen. And I'm looking and I said, whoa, you're looking for a male suspect. All these women came up. So why is it then yeah. bringing up women when you're looking for a male suspect? And, you know, of course, the chief at the time was dismissing it and make any sense. And then, of course, you know, expressed concern of me saying, well, you know, I, I also know there's bias if you have analysis done by a black officer or an analysis uh, a person that analyzes these faces versus somebody that's white. And he he took aback by that. And I said, understand this. You're using technology that is flawed. I'm not making this up. You know, these studies. I mean, when I met with Detroit Digital Justice Coalition and this is before ACLU Michigan even filed a lawsuit and so forth. When, when Detroit Digital Justice Coalition brought this study to me, told me what was happening, how they're being installed, especially in low-income communities, and how dangerous this was, you know, again, overwhelmingly showing statistics uh, that were just massively, like, I mean, I mean, I, when I saw that it said uh, statistics from systems, but generally speaking, racial technology, technology um, facial recognition technology has an error rate, I think, of 1% to 3% for white men. But do you know for black women it is? About 25 to 35%. That's just for black women, error rate. Mm -hmm. I mean, that to me uh, is enough to say, look, federal government, federal funds should not, public research should not be used for something. Again, uh, to me, I think makes us less safe in communities of color. And so I, I just, I know talking to even folks that um, understand how prosecutions work, the evidence is so overwhelming that it can't even be the sole evidence that's presented and even in a, a prosecution because it's so flawed. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to talk a little about um, what you see as the kind of things we should be doing to leverage technology to make people safer. Uh, I, I mean, I get that, that, you know, the facial recognition technology is, is, is really flawed and and susceptible to the biases that that exist in other parts of our society. But but do you see a role for technology? Which of course the promise of technology always is that it will make things better and it will make the world more understandable to us. Uh, are, are there things that you imagine we could be doing 
uh, that I guess we're not. Yeah, and I I can tell you it's not just myself. It's just my my neighbors all throughout my 12th congressional district are very wary about technology, <laughs> yeah. as you know. Yeah. But look at look at Project Greenlight. You know, Mayor Duggan's really been touting Project Greenlight and saying this is going to help reduce uh, crime. And people will debate it back and forth. But the kind of um, speed that we're going in and installing these kinds of technology and putting mm-hmm. it out there, it is uh, one. It's done in a way where a lot of these tech groups, they come to, and, and they're experimenting in communities like ours that are desperate, mm-hmm. uh, that are, are, you know, for me, it's about, you know, funding mental health. It's funding, you know, our schools in a way that really has wraparound series. It's, it's doing all that frontline, I think, work that needs to be done that really does help our communities become safe. And so, you know, for these tech groups, they're coming, and it just looks like the easy way out. Oh, if we could just put you know, these cameras up at intersections, <laughs> speeding will be reduced. If we could just put, you know, these cameras up in schools and everything, we won't have mass, you know, shootings. It doesn't work. And so we know, uh, you know, many of us, maybe it's because I'm a social worker at heart. I don't know, Stephen, but I've been kind of touting, hey, you all, this is not going to be the way to fix it. Uh, it is always going to be the way that the going back to the roots of, what is causing, again, for our communities and people to feel unsafe. And so I just know technology, for instance, is being used to scam my seniors. I mean, do you know how many of my seniors are being spoofed right now mm. from, you know, thinking DT, you owe money to DT, DT mm-hmm. numbers coming up on their screen, Stephen? I mean, they're getting calls in my office about it. And so I know that it, it, it can actually be very dangerous for our community, especially because we don't fully understand what's behind it. But we should listen to the data. We should look at that. I mean, I hope the police commission, I hope, you know, I'm, I'm glad the chief at least acknowledges what happened to uh, Portia was, you know, sure. um, pretty, pretty egregious. But I, I just hope that there's action behind that and that we stop spending. I mean, when I saw $6 million at one point was being spent on, again, technology that's flawed and does not recognize black faces, I, I was just, you know, I was floored to see that kind of resource being spent um, rather than, I think, uh, really try to uplift communities that needed the most help in around poverty and around, you know, services and things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I want to take one more quick call. Uh, Ray at Wayne State. Ray, I've only got a couple minutes left, but I want to get you in here. Okay, well, very quickly then. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, um, greetings to uh, Madam Talib. I, I admire you a great deal as many people in the community do. I'm, I'm in Detroit. I teach at Wayne State University. I just want to say that this is a hornet's nest of bad implications, but just very briefly, because I know you don't have much time, mm-hmm. we should look at where the hornet's nest came from. The, the basic issue here is automation. Automation, Taylorism, or Fordism, as it used to be called, mass production, mm-hmm. took the human element out of work. And it spread from car production to every aspect of human work at the beginning of the 20th century. And there, we can just drag out all those studies and all those articles mm-hmm. and all those, those critiques of mass production and the dehumanization of work. Well, AI and uh, facial re- recognition and all those technologies take the human I element. I feel like that's a, the, a, a, a current iteration of those things. Ray, I don't want to cut you off, but I am going to run out of time. And I do want to have... Congresswoman Tlaib, uh, respond respond to that. Uh, again, I've got only about uh, 30 seconds now, but, but go ahead. No, there's I was absolutely an element to that. It's a really uh, interesting connection, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it is an interesting connection. And, you know, look, in 
regarding facial recognition, one thing that I think my Republican colleagues brought up, and I thought it was very important, Helen, is how much, how much, so all the, the dry, you know, DMV record, you know, the, the, the motor vehicle records, people's IDs were just dumped into this database with no permission, like you, me, all of us just dumped in it. And, and I remember like, we had a hearing because we, everybody was reacting to the fact that and I may have been at ACLU that did this, but they put all my colleagues in in this, <laughs> uh, you know, just kind of an old, old yeah. experiment. Oh, my goodness. I think it was four of them came up as being felons. Yeah. Uh, they were being <laughs> identified as, yeah, facial recognition technology identified them being the same person as somebody that had committed a felon. I remember Jimmy Gomez from California just being floored into saying, whoa. Um, but even then, I think our colleagues, all of us realized, you know, I think it took that for them to yeah. realize it yeah. could be any of us. Yeah. It could be any one of us. Okay. Uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, always great to have you here with us on the show. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. That's it for the Detroit Today podcast. You like this show. You get a lot out of it. You ought to be sharing it. Share it with your friends and your neighbors, your relative, anyone you think would enjoy it and would add to this community that we're building here. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our student producer is Mira Kumar. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. We'll see you next time on the Detroit Today podcast.